Good night, past. Hope you are well, and welcome to today's broadcast. Relating to different aspects of stress and stress management. Now, recently, I was fortunate enough to sit down with Oliver Patrick, who is the executive director of the Via V Clinic on Harley Street in London. Now, Oliver is a fatigue. Brings me great comfort. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> So on the menu today, we're talking about stress resilience. Now, um, stress is obviously one of those broad, sweeping, and loaded terms. So as a specialist, how do you define stress? It's the worst question. Starting off on a bad Start off on the worst question. There are many sort of dictionary definitions <laughs> that when, when pressures exceed our ability to cope. You know, and, and that will be the, sort of the, the unifying element. When pressures or... or responsibilities or demands on an individual exceed their ability to cope with those and and interestingly you know that that normally refers to a mental issue you know in terms of the things i am faced with exceed my ability to process them and, and therefore i start beginning you know to 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 generate stress it's always been a slightly negative definition and, and most people who work with performance or certainly in sports performance or corporate performance know that stress is the lifeblood of good performance you know but but defining what is good stress and bad stress is where it always gets tricky there's a really interesting application from sports performance that applies to most modern day thinking around stress which was the pressure performance curve which is that we've all got this natural relationship between Increasing pressure on us increases our performance. You know, if, if I've got nothing to do, then I'm not that satisfied. You know, being bored is as bad as being stretched or being overstretched. So we know that, that there's a, a linear relationship between increasing pressure and getting more out of an individual. But there comes a point where that loading of pressure just goes too far. And, and what happens then is we move past that stress-increasing performance to that increase in pressure-decreasing performance. And, and that term is, is normally referred to as distress. And... So we all face this on a daily basis, you know, and I used to use the analogy of we all put eggs into a basket. You know, in my basket, there might be you know, my commute to work alongside my financial responsibilities to my wife, which are enormous, um, you know, and, uh, and looking after my children and other things. And, and I've got all those eggs in my basket, but my basket's big enough to handle those things. But then someone gets ill and then there's a bigger demand at work and suddenly there's too many eggs for my basket. And then I start to have a decreased performance. And that's easy to transfer in, in a sporting setting, that some people run their best times in national championships, but run bad times at Olympics. But in the real world, we all face a similar thing. We're all facing many, many small or moderate sized demands on us on a daily basis. And they get to points where those demands are slightly above our ability to naturally process them and deal with them. And at that point, we get diminishing performance. And, and what's really interesting, we start to get diminished effects on our human physiology. Um, and that is, is why I, as a physiologist, can talk about stress, because ultimately stress leads in to disease. And, and I've always been fascinated by the pathways and mechanics of how that happens, and therefore how do we stop that happening if we understand it. Just as an aside, with, with the Olympics that just finished, how do you get around the idea of Usain Bolt? Because yep. you got a guy who's, who's obviously performs at the very, very, very top of his craft, but you see him before the event, yeah. and there's no, is he good at hiding things? Is there, there's no reflection that he's under any sort of stress at all. And I, I appreciate the value of you stressing it and then finding your, um, your, your optimum tipping point. Yes. But 
I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, 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 on looking at him just from, from an outside perspective, unless you're standing next to him, because he, he, I, how do you explain that? Because he's, he's, he seems so chilled on the outside, but yet when the gun goes off, yeah. you'd never know it. How does, is he just a unique character? He, he, he certainly changed, changed the perception of, of the 100 meters in terms of... There, there, are, there are different pressure performance curves depending on different sports. So certain sports, for example, like, a, like, like snooker, which are fine motorsports, don't need much psyching up beforehand. You, know, you don't need much pressure to get your best performance. Other sports like weightlifting, you would normally have a huge amount of, of stimulus. You need that high level of, of pressure to get that performance out of you. And, and 100 meters always used to be a bit more like the weightlifting, that the guys would be hugely psyched up, hugely in their zone, and, and that prepared them for optimal performance. Usain Bolt was anomalous in the fact that, that he didn't need to get himself to that point of, of high rev for whatever reason. He could still be engaging with the crowd. He could still be outside of his focus. Yet, at that moment before the, the gun goes off, he can bring himself to that point of optimal performance. So uh, it's beyond my traditional physiology to explain how he does that. And, and I, I would always suspect that having an, an incredibly natural biomechanical frame being, you know, uniquely genetically gifted would give you a confidence that maybe you don't need to play by the rules that everyone else does. Um, but there'll be psychologists studying him for many years to come and, and you know, and sports physiologists because he really changed the way in which you interact with that event. And what you've seen recently is lots of people following that and being more jokey with the camera and not being as singularly focused. And I think that was, again, around this idea that if you put too much pressure on, if you increase your, your arousal level too much, then actually the, the, when the gun goes off, your, your performance may be diminished. And he definitely wanted to stay on the, on the under-aroused side of things before he, he, he fired off that event. Well, if you bottle some cells, then I hope I could have a chance to buy some. Buy some. It's beautiful. <laughs> uh, again, with the, with the specialist hat firmly, firmly implanted, how do you define stress resilience? So stress resilience is really this concept that people become unwell from stress. You know, there, there, are a range of, there are a range of recognized medical conditions, anything from cardiovascular disease, which would include your strokes and your heart attacks, up to you know, some clear forms of cancer, bowel cancer, strong links, other cancers, strong links to stress. So we know stress is not a purely psychological issue. What, what we're interested in is how do we stop someone becoming unwell from stress? And that unwell being right up to those scary chronic diseases, but equally functionally unwell, which might be impacting on sleep quality, might be impacting on um, weight loss or weight gain, might be impacting on libido. How do we put someone into a pressurized environment but stop them getting unwell? And so often with, with stress, it's looking at, can I change the stressor? So if my stress is my commute, can I not commute? Or if my stress is my commute, can I change the way I think about my commute? When we look at stress resilience, it's every step of the chain, everything from how I change my environment, as in do I commute, to how I perceive my environment, as in what do I think about this commute, right up to how my physiology interacts with my thinking. As in, if I think this is stressful, can I still stop myself getting unwell by improving my physiological resilience? So you could have two people, both hate their commute, both on a train commuting, and one goes to become unwell and one doesn't. And does the one who doesn't employ strategies that stop that thought process around stress manifesting into disease? 
And as a physiologist, that would lead us into how do we stop our body becoming unwell even if we encounter and perceive stress. Okay. Now, on that note, in term, now there will be um, diagnostic tools and what have you that, that we'll go into, but in terms of, um, of someone's ability to be more or less stress resilient, is there any sort of, how do you measure that or how can you measure that as an individual? That's difficult, you know, and clearly the, the, the big area of stress is, is always going to be psychology, as in if I perceive the world to be a dangerous place, I'll see more danger in it. You know, there's a, there's a really interesting body of work around cognitive bias, that if I'm a very positive person, I'll see the best in every scenario. If I'm a very negative person, I'll see the negative in every scenario. So how we view the world will affect how many stressors we encounter, no doubt about that. But how our body becomes more resilient will be down to through which mechanics does me perceiving the world as stressful make me unwell. And what we know is if I perceive something to be stressful, I set off a chain of events that are physiological. Once I've made that choice, once I've seen something, you know, a collection of events, and I've decided that's too much, it's beyond my ability to cope, I am then setting off a chain of events that would often be simplified as this concept of fight or flight, which we, you know, we recognize clearly the body has not evolved to recognize stress as non-physical. So if I encounter a, a, a physical attacker in the street or I'm sent a P45 you know, in the post, my body will react much the same way in both scenarios. Once I perceive it as stressful, my body is preparing me to physically survive that encounter. And so by doing that, it produces a chain of, um, of nervous system and hormonal events that prepare me very well to get out of danger. And what we're interested in is if someone is encountering regular attacks, hopefully not the physical type, but you know, the work-based stresses or things they're perceiving, how do we bolster their physiology so that those, those attacks are dampened? How is it that if I'm regularly on a trading floor, I can reduce the scale and extent to which my fight-or-flight reaction fires, or I can mitigate the, the sort of lingering physiology of that and, and get rid of that quicker? And here we, you know, we're talking about um, principles of, of, of excessive hormones and stress hormones that, that when circulating could cause problems. Can we diminish the production of those or can we clear them quicker? We're talking about nervous systems that, when alerted, would decrease my ability to go to sleep. Can I correct them back to baseline quicker? So even if I'm perceiving the world with a negative cognitive bias, can I get my physiology to bounce back faster in a more robust fashion and therefore diminish the chance of me falling unwell from my body going into that fight-or-flight mode? Okay. Now, in terms of of perception or I, you may have already answered this question but I'll, I'll go through and, and tell me your thoughts um, whether in the workplace or at home etc whatever your surroundings happen to be commutes as, as you say is there a tipping point where someone will then say I need help like, like uh, are there common triggers in your experience when someone holds up their hands and, re- and requests assistance I think people are pretty good at, at bullying their way through it you know there's, there's a Certainly the British, there's a sort of stoicness to say, you know, stiff up a lip, get, get on with it. This, this, is, this is normal. I think there's, there's a really interesting culture around what is expected to be normal. People in a busy corporate environment might expect it to be normal to not wake up feeling refreshed after sleep. People might think it normal to require alcohol to switch off in the evening. People might think it normal to have digestive bloating after wolfing down their lunch at their desk. 
So I think people are pretty bad at spotting when, when functionality drops. They, they, they more often put their hand up when they realize that they've fallen uh, over completely, as in you know, something has gone horribly wrong and, and they've been checked and they've got an enormously high blood pressure or they've had a heart attack, heaven forbid, or they've got you know, an, a diagnosable IBS or they're having fertility issues. And so they've got a real medical reason why they need to go back up and look at their stress. Or they've become attached to a coping mechanism that they recognize isn't healthy. You know, that might be caffeine to get them through the day. That might be alcohol to switch them off in the evening. That might be drugs to help them escape you know, the concept of, of their day-to-day existence. So normally people are either facing down a medical concern and saying, can I get back on top of that? Or they're facing down an unhealthy attachment to a behavior that they recognize has its root cause in stress. Not many people are, are, are prompted to look at stress sort of on a more linear basis and say, how did I function and feel when I was in my teens? And I didn't, and of course you had stresses then, you know, young love and you know, <laughs> learning to drive and, you know, yeah, exactly. spots. You know, so, you know, re- real stresses, which are, which are always there. But when you reference back certainly to energy and say, you know, how's your energy levels now compared to when you were 22? And people say, well, markedly different. You would often look to say, well, is stress or your way of coping and mediating stress, potentially the, the, the mediator of why your energy levels are, are far less than they used to and, and far less than they should be. Okay. Out of curiosity, do you, do you find that when, when, you, when you see a client, is, is that client usually coming to you and again, they've, they've, they've tried to battle through and they can't? Or do you find that people come on someone's behalf? Good question. Generally people, we get a lot of people saying, can you see my other half because I know that they, they would benefit with this because they've watched a change in mood stability or they've watched a change in physicality or you know the, the, the concept of this if stress is excessive for long periods of time and we're getting those excessive stress hormones we're getting insufficient sleep it has a visible impact on the body you know it will have an impact on skin quality or have an impact on uh, certainly again libido and, and people's sex life will have an impact on immunity and so there's lots of people who, who stand one step away from an individual will say, he gets ill every winter. And every time we go on holiday, you know, she gets a cold or a flu. Or, you know, there's no urge to have any sexual encounters anymore unless it's a special occasion. You know, so that, that observation is often quite, quite important. People putting their hand up often get to a point where they, they say there must be more to this. You know, and, and I'm not a big fan of... Instagram and, and various other sort of social media sites which, faint, which perhaps paint a false picture of what well-being is because everyone seems to fall short of this sort of perfect physique in a, in a perfect, you know, sort of sun, sun-kissed environment. You know, we all don't meet that. But, but someone who recognises that they've changed a huge amount from who they used to be a couple of years ago often has a, a desire to explore why that might be. It's interesting what you say about about uh, social media because um, I've heard more and more the desire from clients to see fitness professionals show their failures as much as their successes. Yeah, and I think there's a lot to be said for um, for showing that you're human. Uh, agreed. It needs and, to be done. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's distancing the fitness and well-being well-being profession from the everyday person because not everyone wants to be washboarded from a stomach point of view not everyone wants to be able to do an upside down handstand for an hour not everyone wants to commit every waking thought to how they can get the optimal micronutrient balance in a, in a smoothie most people want to just feel okay you know and look attractive you know and not be held back by their physiology you know and 
and moving it away from an aesthetic discussion, which, which social media has to be because it's only portraying the physicality, to an intrinsic, how do I feel? And is the way I feel the way I would expect to feel or the way I used to feel? That, that's a really important debate. And wellness is, is really a, a state of function, not a state of appearance. Um, getting back to what you're saying about uh, someone comes in to see you, can you see my other half? Yeah. What would you say to them to, as, a, as, an, as an, an immediate answer as, as to what to do? Would you say book the appointment? Is there anything they can do on their own? Or how would you, how would you deal with it? I think, you know, there's, there's, people have to come to the well to drink. You know, it, 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 yeah. you, you, know you can't force anyone to do it. There's such a, a, a sort of rebellion against... Well, people use the, way, the phrase nanny state or, or you know, or or the sort of pious fitness professional, it's because it's they feel like they're being told how to live their life. And, and I think that tell message is, is worn thin. Too many people saying, look at me, do as I do. Um, and an individual who, who hasn't recognised their own issue, but it's been recognised for them, has to want to discuss that, has to want to change in the first instance. So it's got to be their reason that they want to change that. And then what they have to understand is they're not going to be told off. You know, if I, if I do any talk to a room full of people and say, you know, put your hand up if you lead a really healthy lifestyle, th- th- almost no one will put their hand up. Guys who train two, three times a week, guys who don't eat junk food because they're benchmarking against something that, that they think is, is better than them. And I think lots of people have a fear to, to access a health professional for this person picking them apart and, and they don't want to be picked apart. So we, we don't start with judging lifestyle. We judge, yeah, we don't judge. We evaluate physiology. We say, hey, this is how you look from a, a metrics point of view. And if we change this parameter, we would expect you to get this benefit. How appealing is that to you? Your choice. You know, if someone comes in, goes through a raft of, of physiological testing, diagnostic testing, and says, I don't want to change a thing, that's their choice. That's their informed choice. They know what the action is required to change the thing that we've identified. But it's their choice. If we find someone who's got high body fat and that's causing inflammation and that could be contributing to why they they get repeated injuries, if we map out for them what they need to do to correct that and it feels too difficult for them or they're not prepared to make that first step, it's their choice. And it's not our right to be angry or disappointed. It's for us to nurture the best way to lead their life as they see it. I think with um, I know from my perspective with uh, with with assessments and, and body composition measurements are always the the, the, the telltale for this for especially for the second and third time around during a program. Yeah, is you'll see people who will come in and it becomes the grand confession. Yeah, like I'm tempted to have the um, the, the the vanity barrier where people stand behind when I'm doing the measurements. Yeah, uh, I'm tempted to have a little screen that pulls up like a confessional in church. Yeah. And when they walk in the door and they're telling me how much pizza they ate, I say, say what are your sins, my child? <laughs> because because it, it's, it's the only way to... Because people come in and they, and they want to unburden themselves yes. what they don't realize. And I'm sure, I'm sure probably the same thing happens with you. This is not designed to be a confrontational, judgmental space. Exactly right. It's exactly the opposite. It's the exact opposite. And it's a, it's a place where you know, there is no... You know, potentially the exception of smoking, no universally system-destroying behavior. You know... I will indulge in a McDonald's. I remember after I'd done the training for a group of 48 physiologists, you know, I said, you know, let, let, have, let's have a McDonald's. And sort of half of them were aghast. I said, this humanizes us. 
you know, it, you know, we'll, we'll we'll get rid of this. You know, our, hopefully our digestive system can handle it, and our blood sugar will will flex. We know what it does, but we still will sometimes choose to do something that isn't always in our best interest because we enjoy life. Yeah, and so that immediate sense of I'm talking to a human being who can empathise with the fact that I've made these choices for for logical reasons. And if there's things that I don't like about my physiology or my mood or my phys- or my physicality, then having someone help unpick which of those things would be the, the most effective thing to drop is great. You know, there's nothing better than when someone's fully engaged in the purpose. And then you move to the strategies. Okay, we've now got a purpose to improve your body fat for whatever reason we've identified. Now, how are we going to do that? Yeah, and that's for the individual to, to choose. Um, and what we're able to do with, with testing is evaluate that if the choice they make is excluding a particular fast food they always eat or beginning a movement program that they weren't doing before, then we just remeasure and check whether that is generating value. You know, and what metrics give us you know, in stress, as much as in body composition, is the chance to let someone know that the effort they've put into this new thing is worthwhile. Because, as I mentioned before, not everyone is a great appraiser of how they feel. Not everyone is walking around all the time going, my energy levels are 2% less than they were five years ago. Lots of people are, are just are not intuitive to their body. So they need a metric that says, okay, that is how my stress levels were at point one. I recognize that could be contributed to my body fat. I've now started meditating. And now here I am at point two, and I'm seeing that that stress metric has markedly decreased. And as I see that, that makes sense because I do feel a bit better. But would I have had enough belief in that change in how I feel to keep meditating forever? I don't think so. You know, and, and what I see is people dropping off behaviors and dropping and picking them up as sort of, you know, as seasonal fruits because they never really believe that that thing was the, was the catalyst for change. And so what I'm always keen in is evaluation and using that evaluation to create a strategy, then supporting that strategy as much as I can. If that person wants to start walking, monitoring them with, with any remote technologies and, and feedback loops, but then consolidating that strategy by showing that that walking, that moving is working. And then I will believe that that person will continue to walk you know, for as long as they live because they've seen the value of it, not just in how they feel, but on a piece of paper or on a graph or on a chart or on their phone. And, and we're human in wanting reward for our efforts. There's nothing abnormal about that. Okay. Now, in terms of improving stress resilience, do you have a hit list of the first of the first sort of areas or first things you'd look to improve? Is there, is there or I guess it's, is it, does it depend on the individual? It, it, for us, with the luxury of technology, you know, we, we will run a metric called heart rate variability, which allows us to measure the individual's sort of real-time response to stress and real-time levels of recovery over a 72-hour or, or similar period. So we're able to say, hey, We've recognized through maybe hormone testing or symptoms that your body has been getting this balance between pressure and coping slightly wrong, and your hormones are either too high or too low, depending on what we're seeing. Why? And then we use this, the heart rate variability technology to look at their, their way they interact with their world to see where are the pinch points in that. And the pinch points might be that we don't see quality recovery in their sleep. And if that's the case, then we're focused on strategies to improve sleep, which will be sleep hygiene. We might see lack of recovery at times when they're eating. And that would, again, look at their their pace of eating and their relationship with food and their blood sugar balance. We might see an inability to switch off 
from being highly stressed during a working day to, to returning home. And that might lead us to focusing on boundaries and something like meditation um, to transition them from a stimulating environment to a calming environment. The, the, the sort of four things that would be universally beneficial would be increasing cardiovascular capacity, which has a big impact on bolstering physiological resilience. Again, there's a huge focus on resistance training in the fitness industry because people feel that has a bigger impact on body composition and, and myesthetics. That, that, that may well be true, but our cardiovascular system um, has a big impact on what we call parasympathetic tone and therefore reducing how my body reacts to those stresses. So my cardiovascular capacity or aerobic capacity, my, again, blood sugar balance, my ability to eat in a way that doesn't cause large fluctuations in my blood sugar level, and that would be around glycemic load or glycemic index, if you're familiar with those terms, I know you would be, um, as in not eating refined carbohydrate foods, not eating food too fast, having a good proportion of protein and fats with my meals, and eating in a sort of French laboured style, hanging out, chatting, and enjoying my, my eating as a social part. Uh, on top of that, you would always look at meditation. And, and meditation is an intervention we've seen uh, have an enormous physiological impact when done properly. Uh, and some people respond to mindfulness meditation, others more traditional transcendental meditation with a, with a bigger time commitment, but that, that also would play a huge role. And you know, within that, again, sleep hygiene, application of stimulants, and probably the, the, the unexpected one, use of alcohol. And alcohol as a stress reliever is, is a falsehood. You know, alcohol as a muscle relaxant, yes, which makes me feel better when I'm stressed, but as an accelerator or almost an, you know, a petrol on the flames of my stress, absolutely. Um, and one big issue we see is people who have a busy life, who you know, are facing huge amounts of pressures and demands, and as part of their coping mechanism, they turn to alcohol to help them switch off and disengage in the evening and even get to sleep. And we see their sleep cycles enormously disrupted through that uh, and a cycle begin that, that's very difficult to get out of. Yeah. Excellent. Now, um, again, I believe this question you've probably answered, so this may be cut out. <laughs> uh, you've, you've, you've mentioned uh, the causal connection between stress resilience and work performance. Yeah. And probably why one of the key areas where you'll see heart rate variability and, and stress resilience coaching coming in is the corporate marketplace because a company CEO will recognize if, if I can improve the resilience of my workforce, then I can expect them to be not just less absent, but more productive. You know, in, and, and you're into a very sort of difficult area there, but ultimately if someone is improving their quality of stress resilience, the one short-term and immediate feature you'd expect is improved energy. So if, if that stress is affecting sleep, which it almost inevitably does, if that stress is affecting stimulant use, if that stress is affecting blood sugar balance, if that stress is affecting alcohol consumption, these are all energy-robbing elements. And, and the one thing that you know, any employer would want from their staff is high energy. And the one thing an individual would want, which is not just for their, their corporate world, but for their, their social world and their relationships, is better energy. And, and improving stress resilience whether it has a payout role in anti-disease or it has a playout role in anti-aging and cosmetics, those, those are always open questions. For me, definitively, they do. But it will undoubtedly have an impact on energy levels. And that's a win-win for a corporate 
provider as much as it pays for an individual. Okay. With the relationship between uh, stress resilience and disease, what's is there is, is there a sort of a clinical time frame where, where where stress becomes the disease? Good, good question. Not no. So nothing is okay. nothing is definitive. I mean, there is when you come back to adrenal fatigue, there's there's a sensation that. In most people, when you're measuring cortisol, you're not looking for adrenal fatigue. Most people don't have it. You're looking for them producing excessive cortisol, which suggests that their body is, is demanding more stress hormone because they're not recovering enough natural energy. So if we, if we again take that, that individual, huge amount of pressures, using stimulants, using alcohol, they won't be getting good sleep recovery. They won't be getting daytime recovery but their body still has to get up the next day and, and function, running a, a hedge fund or you know, being a, opening a shop. So it will produce cortisol to, to get them through that process. That's a given. The role of cortisol you know, in, in generating energy is great, but high levels of cortisol can be immune suppressing. Um, high levels of cortisol can be made at the expense of other um, hormones which are involved in my uh, immune production. There are thoughts around too much cortisol shifting my immune system from being focused on preventing sort of longer, more, more latent diseases like the cancers to more acute issues that I might encounter if I was being attacked by a bear, like skin infections and, and various issues. So if I shift my immune system to, to something that looks like an impact injury, but away from the, the mind sweeping of the, the sort of more latent chronic disease, that's often talked about as a potential route through which high stress levels and high cortisol levels could mediate more chronic disease. But, but you're really talking about energy. You're saying if, if I'm directing a finite pool of energy to, a, to, to managing stress resilience, then where am I taking that energy from? And immunity is, is undoubtedly the pot that suffers. And, and the best example to anyone listening to this who trains will be what happens when you overtrain. First thing that happens when people overtrain, they get ill. You know, they travel on the tube and an airborne virus they would normally gobble up and, and, and destroy makes its way through because their immune system has been sacrificed at the expense of all the muscle recovery or all the other issues and, and again for Olympic athletes their great fear is in this huge training volume how do I keep my immune system robust, how do I make sure I get enough recovery that that system is not exposed at the cost then of, of end performance okay and finally, in terms of um, someone listening who is, is, is sort of, I guess, is questioning their own their own stress resilience. Again, is there is there uh, what would you suggest to people in terms like before seeking out a professional, or, or if that's the first port of call, and then obviously it's probably the best course of action. But what would you recommend to someone who wants to wants to examine their own stress resilience to find out what they can improve? What, what suggestions would you make? That's uh, again. A good one. To, to evaluate stress levels, a change, a consistent change in something is always relevant. A change in sleep quality or ability to fall asleep, a change in body composition not explained by um, perhaps a change in eating or exercise, a change in mood stability, a change in libido, a change in immunity. And again, just, check, just checking yourself and saying, is it normal to expect to get ill twice every winter? Is it normal to expect to get ill every time I go away? So symptom-wise, symptom what has changed now versus what I used to be five years ago, 10 years ago. Aging does not 
demand that those things would fall away so negatively. Aging is, is not an excuse to suddenly gain weight. Aging is not an excuse to suddenly feel tired. Aging is not an excuse to suddenly have bad skin. Aging is not an excuse to suddenly look old. There's much, uh, much more to it than that. So I would say if those symptoms have changed or are interesting, that, that's, that's to be explored. Um, a way of evaluating short-term whether someone is perhaps not recovering as well and not getting that balance right is first morning heart rate. So assuming someone is at a stage where they're nice and balanced and relaxed, maybe post-holiday and, and feeling chilled out, what is their resting heart rate after they've woken up in the morning, gone for a pee, got back into bed for a couple of minutes, and just by putting, again, fingers in their neck and taking a pulse, what does that look like? And then I'm always interested in when that the, the, the resting heart rate is sort of eight to ten beats above that. that. That's a very nice, simple marker to say, hmm, my body is working harder than it should be at this time of the day. And what does that mean for my sleep recovery? What does that mean for my overall recovery? And, you know, I'm using the word recovery as perhaps more often than I'm using stress because we all encounter stress, we all encounter pressures, that's natural. But it's when our recovery is diminished, when our recovery is poor, that's when we start to see the pathways leading towards someone becoming unwell. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much, appreciate that. Pleasure. Thanks, man. Hi guys, James here from Fit to Last. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have any questions regarding this podcast, please drop me an email to james at fittolast.co.uk and I look forward to speaking with you soon. Thanks again. See you next time.